0: Welcome to Writers' Festival Radio. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival, and we're still dealing with the pandemic, so for the time being, we'll have to keep connected virtually, even as we maintain our distance. We're broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Special thanks to the Ottawa Public Library for their collaboration in our virtual season all available online at writersfestival.org so all you need to do to connect with some of the world's most acclaimed authors is click play. As always I want to thank you for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. It's always a good idea to buy a book and of course you can't go wrong supporting local independent booksellers. Today I'll be talking modern monetary theory with Dr. Stephanie Kelton, professor of economics and public policy at the State University of New York at Stony Brook and Bloomberg contributing columnist. She's the founder of the top rated economic blog, New Economic Perspectives, was chief economist on the U.S. Senate Budget Committee, minority staff, and an advisor to the Bernie 2016 presidential campaign. Her book, The Deficit Myth, Modern Monetary Theory and the Birth of the People's Economy, is an international sensation, and it may well be changing the world. Stephanie, thank you so much for being with us today. It's, it's a real pleasure to have you. And, um, you know, this remarkable book, The Deficit Myth, um, which is just appearing now uh, in paperback, it's such a fascinating read because especially during the pandemic, as we've, we've economies all over the world, we've been trying to wrap our head around what does it mean to live a good life? What is the limit of, of a government's involvement in, in our day to day? But it seems like you know you have to start a book like this by explaining almost the basics to people. And so we think of a government money in the same way that we think of a household budget. And so I wanted to start by asking you about money itself and how do we where where does the value in money come from? I mean, we use it all the time, we think of it as, as almost a part of the natural world, but it, it is artificial, it is created. And so I want to, if we can, just start by by. The basic idea of what is public money is that a good place to start.
1: Yeah, I think it's a really good place to start um, because there's so much confusion, as you said. Um, you know, 40 years ago or or so, Margaret Thatcher uh, told the British people that there is no public money. She just denied the very existence of public money. She said there is only taxpayer money. And I think that really is the way we think about government money. You know, when the government spends money, to the extent that any of us spend a moment thinking about it at all, uh, (laughs) we probably think, well, they got it from us, right? That's our our money. And you will hear sometimes people say, I pay your salary, you know, when they get really mad at their um, elected officials or Mm -hmm. something. So we we really don't think, in a sense, that the government has any money of its own, that what it does is come and take money from the rest of us. And so we are taxpayers, and that's how the government gets money. They come to well, us. And,
0: they- and And they're explicit about that, is we need to pay for this somehow, right? Anytime there's a new spending program, especially if it's, say, education or health or infrastructure – uh, we hear from from a whole string of politicians and economists and extremely intelligent people. Well, how are we going to pay for this? We have to pay for it. So, who are you going to tax? Right, that's the exactly. question that's asked.
1: Exactly, and that's exactly what Margaret Thatcher wanted to do with that uh, statement of hers by denying the existence of public money and putting all of the burden onto the taxpayer. What she told people was listen, if you want things, you can't simply expect the government to deliver public goods and services on behalf of the people. We have no money to do that. If you want them, you're going to have to pay up. So it shifts this burden onto the taxpayer. And so that you're really forced to ask yourself, wait a minute, do I really want to give up my money in order to have, you know, better funded schools, I don't have kids in school anymore, my kids have graduated, you know, so then it becomes, I'm going to pay for someone else to have these things. So yes, it is a a problem, because um, that's not the way it works. And the government does have the ability to fund things using its own money. And it can do that without turning to taxpayers. And if anyone you know, doesn't believe it's the case, just look what's been happening for the last year. Governments around the world have committed trillions and trillions of dollars in spending to deal with coronavirus pandemic, the ensuing economic fallout. And I haven't noticed very many governments that went out and raised taxes as all of this was happening. So it it should be increasingly obvious to people that governments actually do have public money And, you know, it was was a prime minister that came much later than Margaret Thatcher, um, Theresa May, who told the people, again, of Great Britain, uh, there's no magic money tree, Mm -hmm. you see. So this is how they deny or attempt to deny the spending capacity of the state. We don't have money. You do. You have
0: to pay for it. And as you're saying, you know, right now, as as governments, certainly here in Canada, we 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 rolled out a, a massive amount of spending. That you even south of the border have just uh, President Biden has just passed a massive bill um, for spending. But the the, the behind the scenes, where we keep hearing rumblings that well, someone's going to pay for it eventually. It's my grandkids, right? It's my son's kids. It's it's down. Somebody is going to pay for this. There is no free lunch because. Uh, we all remember from from economics class that you've been at a high school level you, you what is it ta- tax borrow spend that that's where how else would the money come? but you flip it around and you say you spend first. why is can you explain that to us and and just why why does it matter what comes first, the spending or the clawing it back?
1: Yeah, so I, I think it matters because it liberates us um, to think about what we're really capable of doing when we understand that governments can commit to spending money that they do not have. The the model that we operate with is, as you said, tax and borrow, and then you have money that you can turn around and spend. So we think that the government has to arrange its finances the way that we do you know, as as households, that we have to come up with the money. I I can't drive off the uh, dealer's lot with a new car until I've arranged the financing. I have to pay for it first. The money has to come first. Um, And I have to get that money from somewhere. Got to earn it or borrow it. Um, The federal government is different. It has to spend its currency into existence before any of the rest of us can have it to either pay taxes or buy government bonds. So the money to pay taxes and buy government bonds comes from the prior act of spending.
0: And I love my brain there's there's I I love the book read the book I feel like I understand the book but there's still there's something it is so counterintuitive to the way we talk about finances. This idea it, it's 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 wonderful. So you're saying there is no reason we can't spend money forth. I mean, certainly the way we do it with, with, with military, we never, ever, ever hear of, um, if a war is started, how are we going to pay for it? We just pay for it. And then we assume that down the road, somebody will pay for it. But, but you're suggesting that it's that the money, the value can actually just be created by, by the central bank.
1: Well, the currency is created that way. So I love that you brought up military uh, defense spending because, you know, there's such a nice example. Every year here in the U.S., uh, Congress votes to reauthorize the defense. uh, There's a Defense Authorization Act Mm -hmm. And, and it comes up every year. And if you look at the way the vote goes in the Senate, where we have 100 senators Uh, it, It passes with overwhelming bipartisan support every single time it comes up. You'll get 89 votes, 92, 93 votes, something like that. And not only do they vote for it, but very often those senators stand up and vote to authorize even more than what the Pentagon and the White House have requested. So if the, Pentagon, if the White House is asked for uh, 720 billion for defense reauthorization for the year, very often Congress will come back and say, why don't you take, you know, 760? We just don't feel like you asked for enough. And so they'll just authorize uh, much more uh, to be spent. Now, where the money comes from are the votes the votes fund the spending. You know, people will say things like, well, how are you going to find the money to fund this or that? And I always say, you don't find the money. It's not you're not on a gold standard. Nobody has to go dig a hole in a, in the ground and and locate something. What you need to find are the votes. And if the votes are there, the money will go out. And we saw that time and time again. You just mentioned the 1.9 trillion that President Biden signed yesterday. What What Democrats did, and they did it alone because there were no Republicans that joined them in this, uh, Democrats found the votes and the votes fund that 1.9 trillion, The, the money will go out because the government's bank, the Federal Reserve will carry out, make the payments that have been authorized by Congress on behalf of the US Treasury. So the Fed will carry out the payments using, are you ready? Nothing more than a computer keyboard to type the numbers into the bank accounts, and the the currency is created digitally in that moment.
0: But this, when they do that, they're adding to this the debt clock, right? They're adding to this this massive amount of of red tape. This, the sort of the the. This huge debt that we can see it goes up every second, right? Every millisecond, there's 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 millions of dollars. I've seen it online. That the, the so somebody's going to pay for that eventually, right? That's what we're told.
1: Well, that's what we're told, but it's broken thinking. And <laughs> so yeah, so what's happening is so just to be clear, the the difference between the deficit and the debt. So the the deficit is something we measure each year. You you have to measure it over time. So the deficit is nothing more than the difference between two numbers. That is literally all it is. And people get a lot of anxiety and and become uneasy when they hear that governments are running large fiscal deficits, they should not. um, Because here's what it means. It's the difference between two numbers. So one of those numbers is how many dollars the government is spending into the economy each year. And the other number is how many dollars the government is subtracting back out of the economy, mostly through taxation. So when the government spends more dollars in than it taxes back out we label it a fiscal deficit. We say the government's budget is in deficit. But but if they're adding more than they subtract it means that somebody's getting a surplus. If they put 100 in and only subtract 90 back out, somebody gets 10. So every deficit is good for someone their deficits are our financial surpluses. Government deficits make a contribution, a deposit to some other part of the economy. Now, the question is for whom and for what? Every deficit is good for someone, but some deficits we might think of as um, more constructive, more useful, more responsible than others. Maybe we're investing in education and infrastructure, healthcare versus using deficits the way Republicans did at the end of 2017 here to do massive tax cuts for people who were overwhelmingly already doing really, really well because the benefits went to people at the very top of the income distribution. So that's the deficit. Now, the thing that people worry about, you mentioned the debt clock, that happens because when the government runs a fiscal deficit, it matches up the deficit spending by selling government bonds. And so, you know, in the U.S., we, the government sells treasury bonds. And all of those treasury bonds that exist are part of a thing that we unfortunately call the national debt. What they really are, are the dollars the government spent but didn't tax back. Those dollars are currently being saved in the form of US government bonds. So if you like those government bonds are just an interest-bearing dollar and they're part of our wealth and they're part of our savings. So when you look up at that clock and you see the number grow what you're really watching is the growth of somebody's savings, of their wealth if you're fortunate enough to own some of them. Well congratulations, you know, they're in your portfolio and they comprise part of your financial well-being.
0: And so I guess there is the essential element that that is difficult somehow for, for most of us to wrap our heads around is that when there is uh, uh, a spending deficit in terms of a household, it's the credit card company say or the bank that that is getting the benefit from that. But within a state's economy, within a national economy, I should say a, a currency, um, uh, there is nothing outside of it. So the money that is that is not in the government hands is in somebody else's pocket. And that's 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 what we keep thinking of as good news, right? More money in your pocket. So Yeah, let's...
1: those those bonds are a saving vehicle. They are a way for people to store their dollars in a very safe way because they're default risk free, but they pay a reward. So you get interest income, that's the reward, without taking risk no risk of default so you know sometimes people will say well isn't that just a subsidy that the government is paying to bondholders and i say you got it that's exactly what it is the the decision to allow people to have access to a safe interest-bearing way to store their dollars is you know we could talk about whether it's good public policy whether it serves public purpose but you know it's a very good thing for people who already have money because if you if you have money and you're able to trade it in for an interest-bearing form of currency without having to take risk, uh, I mean you're not subject to default risk, then that's a pretty good deal. So it's it's like a it's a sort of basic income for bondholders. It's a subsidy.
0: Now and and this who for the, the, the thing we often hear about is that the danger is that that um, America, Canada, Russia, you know, who any any large country, were owned by another country. So there is this idea that that um, in America, that any day now China could say, "Pay us back all the money," and, and the economy would collapse. Or the same with Canada. Uh, or any. Where is the flaw in that thinking? Like, who who is it pop? Is is it that when foreigners buy these, when when foreign powers buy um, these bonds, does that create a risk for for the state?
1: No, it doesn't. You know, my friend Warren Mosler, uh, he and I write about him in the book. Warren used to say uh, the only thing we owe China is a bank statement because, you know, what what we allow China and other foreign countries to do is what we allow essentially anybody with dollars to do. You can trade those dollars in and you can buy U.S. government bonds. So yes, China holds uh, about a trillion dollars of U.S. government bonds. Japan holds about a trillion dollars. Does that put us at risk? Uh, People will sometimes say things like, well, boy, I don't know, you know, China's our banker. And if they wake up one day and decide that they're all done lending to the United States, boy, we'll really be in trouble because how are we gonna finance anything? It'll really shut us down. And I say, wait a minute, you think the U.S. dollar is made in China? You think China can turn off the spigot and no more dollars will come out and the U.S. government will, will go broke or not be able to pay its bills or something? Think about that. The U.S. government is the issuer of the dollar. It has the sole legal authority to issue the currency. I can't do it. It would be called counterfeiting and it's illegal. I go to jail. Businesses, um, state and local governments cannot create the dollar, only the federal government. And the founders gave the government that power. It's in the Constitution. It's Article 1, Section 8 of the U.S. Constitution. The government has the sole legal authority to create the U.S. dollar, to issue the currency. So, Could you ever run into a situation where you're dependent upon China for the U.S. dollar? The answer has to be no.
0: Because the dollar doesn't represent anything other than itself. In other words, it's not the same as having I don't know, you owe me five cows, say, where I have to go out and find the five cows. If it's dollars and I am in charge of printing the money, I can just print more money? Is that essentially well, what you're- Well,
1: yeah, these are, these are accounts at the Fed. So these don't even exist in physical form, right? You can touch a cow, you can't touch a treasury. It's just a digital spreadsheet entry. So when China exports goods and services to the US, and when we buy more stuff from China than they buy from us, they end up with U.S. dollars. We pay them, they get dollars in their checking account at the Federal Reserve. Now, China can shift those dollars from its checking account into what's basically a savings account. It's a securities account at the Fed. And that's what happens when China buys treasuries. We debit their checking account, we debit the reserve account, and we credit their securities account. And that's all that happens. So to pay China back... You just reverse the entries. You debit their securities account, so the balance, the amount of treasuries they hold goes down, and you credit the checking account so that they have the dollars back in their account. That's all that is involved in paying back China. If China wants to divest from treasuries and and, sell them, then what they get are US dollars. So it's as easy as debiting one account and crediting another one. It's all done with with a click of a keyboard.
0: Right. And so I guess just to make it clear for everyone, what we're talking about here is exclusively when it comes to federal spending. This is not true of personal debt or a city's debt or a provincial or state debt, right? I mean, it's it's only the currency issuer that would have this level of power. So debt that-
1: that's the central point. You're exactly right. So if we think about what happened after coronavirus started to really hit hard, millions of people losing their jobs, small businesses asked to you know close their doors, um, cash flow stops. You don't have any customers. Uh, state and local governments are getting hammered because as unemployment goes up and people lose their jobs, you know tax revenues go down, sales tax, uh, income tax, and so forth. So households, businesses, state and local governments, they are all currency users. They cannot issue the currency, but the federal government can. And that's the fundamental difference is the government, the federal government is the issuer of the currency and all the rest of us are users of currency, which is why the federal government could step up and send you know, income support, unemployment, uh, insurance compensation, send checks, do Um, PPP loans to small businesses to help them cover expenses and keep workers on payroll, send money to state and local governments so they could try to keep essential services going and so forth. Federal government can spend, we say, counter-cyclically. It can spend even when it's income, so-called, right, when Mm -hmm. revenues are going down. The rest of us have to spend uh, pro-cyclically with the cycle. Our incomes go up, we spend more, our incomes go down we spend less. So it is the, the key distinction between the spending capacity of the currency issuer, the federal government, and the capacity of all the rest of us to spend when our incomes are falling.
0: And so while it's true that, that a nation, uh, a currency-issuing nation cannot ever go bankrupt, we certainly see, and you talk in the book about uh, some, um, what happened to Greece, say, the the, the country of Greece, um, where you contrast quite interestingly that the pressure on the United States economy was very, very similar to the pressure on the Greek economy, but the difference was in what mechanisms they had available to them, right? And so can you maybe just explain to us what happened to Greece and why that is so different than what happened to the United States uh, over the same period?
1: Yeah. In 2010, we watched uh, many countries in Europe Get, you know, fall into the grips of a debt crisis. It was Greece and it was Portugal and Spain, Ireland and Italy, the five really hardest hit countries. Um, And we watched interest rates just absolutely blow out. You know, the borrowing costs for these governments went sky high uh, because, you know, we had the financial crisis and then the global financial crisis and then the recession that followed. And so you're right. The U.S. was in recession. Greece was in recession. All these countries uh, slid into recession. The difference, though, is that the Greek government and the others I mentioned, um, they were all borrowing to try to cover their deficits. Uh, they had to borrow euro. And the difference is that the Greek government doesn't issue the euro the Italian government can't issue the euro. The U.S. government issues the dollar. And all of the uh, bonds that were sold uh, to match deficits were of course denominated in US dollars. So interest rates went to zero here and longer term interest rates uh, stayed very low. We have our own central bank and our own currency. Greece gave up its currency, gave up a sovereign currency that used to have the drachma. Italy gave up the lira and so forth. So these countries started borrowing in a currency that isn't their own and because of that financial markets say hmm you want me to lend euro to you but i'm worried that you might not be able to pay it back because you don't issue the euro so i'll make this loan but i'm going to demand a huge premium to compensate me for the risk of lending money to a currency using government you're not a currency issuer you're you're a currency user so i'm going to i'm going to need 20% 40% and yields just um, blew out, and you had a, a full-blown debt crisis.
0: So I, if I want to. I don't want to go off track here, but then my, this makes me immediately ask: Would would modern monetary theory then suggest something like the eurozone is a mistake? The European Union, the way they've set it up, is is a bad idea.
1: The way they set it up was a bad idea. I I think. It's hard not to um, reach that conclusion. The Maastricht Treaty was the blueprint for the Economic and Monetary Union, the EMU project. And that blueprint had a design flaw in it. And you know, if you were getting ready to start making, you know, aircraft carriers or airplanes or automobiles or something, and you studied the blueprint before you went into production and you found a flaw in, in the design. You would presumably fix it first before <laughs> you start putting passengers in the air. But um they didn't do that. They they drew up a blueprint that had basically like a birth defect in it. It's a it's a design flaw. And they went ahead with the program anyway. And there were economists, not a lot, but there were economists who warned ahead of time before. Uh, the the euro was officially introduced, which happened on January 1st of 1999. Some of us were writing in the mid uh, 1990s, and you know, leading up to the launching of the euro, and saying, "Listen, you should not uh, go forward with this design flaw. You should fix it." And the basic flaw had to do with the fact that um, they were they were moving to create a currency union, one money, one geographic region, but there was not a counterpart on the fiscal side. So in the US, of course, we have a, a monetary union, all 50 Ooh. states and territories. We all have the US dollar circulate, but we also have a fiscal union. We have fiscal policy, a Congress and a treasury that handles fiscal policy for the nation writ large. And they don't have that. They have monetary policy, one currency and a central bank that sets policy for the whole of the region, but they left fiscal policy in the hands of every individual member government, which would be like us leaving it up to California and New York and Texas and Illinois to run fiscal policy here, in in a state depressed economy. It wouldn't work.
0: Right. Okay. So now the because the debt is all in a currency that that uh, that the the nation controls, they can never go bankrupt. That does not, though, mean that there is no limit to how much can be spent, right? You, you get into inflation becomes extremely important here. So we can't just, the federal government can't just mail everyone a check for a billion dollars, say.
1: Well, I suppose it could, but it would be <laughs> a pretty insane thing to do. Uh, remember, the votes fund the spending. So if if you could manage to get enough uh, enough votes to send very large payments, those payments would go out. Now we just we're we're in the process now of doing fourteen hundred dollar checks. They will go to most Americans, including children. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you know, a family of four that qualifies will get fifty six hundred dollars, and it'll just show up in bank accounts. Um, but instead of fourteen hundred, what if Congress had said? 14000 or 140000 mm-hmm. you know, you, you can very quickly imagine how the numbers could get too big. And so, well, yeah, well, you're, why, you're right. There is well, a limit. What would make
0: them too big, though? Because I'm just thinking, I, I can't think of anyone um, who wouldn't want to have, say, a million dollars in the bank. So why wouldn't we be able to, like, what would be the downside, I guess? I'm just, what is the limit of the kind of spending power you're, you're able to free up using uh, modern monetary theory?
1: Yeah. I mean, the limit is your economy's uh, productive capacity. You know, think of um, what would happen if all of a sudden, you know, virtually everybody in the country had massively increased purchasing power. Your bank account was stuffed with tens of tens of thousands of dollars. Boy, people are going to want to go out and spend some money, right and mm. there are only so many cars that have been produced and are sitting on dealer lots there are only so many seats available on airplanes I and mean, we can't all be at disneyland at the same time so the problem is the the productive capacity the the ability of the economy to meet that demand with enough supply and so you know the punishment for overspending is inflation it's not bankrupting the country it's it's creating an inflation problem and so that that is the limit that you have to pay attention to
0: and that's so that there is I mean I guess this I just want to make it clear to everyone that this is not a kind of magical thinking that government could just spend and spend and spend there is a limit to what can actually be produced and you get that essentially comes down to you need you need people to be teachers or doctors right that there is a limit to how many people are there a limit to how much material is there uh, you, you you can apply as much money as you want to building a road, but without concrete, you're, you're kind of out of luck, right?
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, we are now, you know, we've just passed a $1.9 trillion uh, rescue package. And now President Biden is saying, look, that was a down payment. I'm coming back for more. And we'll find out what the number is going to look like uh, maybe sometime later this year. But he is talking about a build back better agenda. Right. And that includes spending money on things like infrastructure, especially climate uh, resilient infrastructure, education, uh, what he calls caregiving, uh, money for pre-K and a variety of other things. So he has the desire to spend, I think, maybe another three or four trillion dollars. Those are the numbers we're talking about here. So it's exactly what you said. If we're going to embark on a a huge, ambitious infrastructure program where we're going to do solar panels and broadband and high-speed rail and climate-resilient housing and all these other things, the question is, is not... Can we afford it? Can we? Will we have the money? That's the easy part. Mm-hmm. The question is, will we have the construction workers, the architects, the engineers, the steel, um, the concrete mixers, the cranes? Like we're we're going to roll out a big infrastructure program. We're going to need real resources to do that. So will we have you know enough idle labor where we can hire people to put up solar panels and and lay broadband cables and and that sort of thing? And if we do, then then we can safely move forward. But if those resources aren't readily accessible, if they're already being used by the private sector, then, you know, it becomes more complicated. You can bid them away from their current use. The government can outbid anybody and it can uh, it can get the workers and the materials that it needs. But if it has to bid up the price in order to do it, then you see the problem. Right. You're inviting some inflationary problems.
0: So this is conceptually bold in that it it pushes against all of our preconceived ideas of how spending works, um, and then it seems that the mechanism that the most concrete mechanism that that you uh, address in the deficit myth for for how um, MMT would would move things forward I think is the federal jobs guarantee. Can you explain what a jobs guarantee is and why it, it is? in your opinion, sort of the, the, the smartest way to deal with with uh, um, an economy and with, with, with a, a nation?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, the job guarantee is designed to eradicate involuntary unemployment, which means if there are people who want to work, they want to be employed, but they can't find a job anywhere else in the economy, the job guarantee is an open-ended job offer. It's like a standing public option in the labor market, where if you're unemployed, you could walk in without a job and walk out with a job. And so, you know, you have to compare, I think, this proposal to the way we do it today, to the the base case is where we are today. And, And what we do today is that we intentionally trap a certain number of people in unemployment. And it sounds crazy, and it sounds like I, I couldn't possibly be serious when I say that, but it is actually by policy design. So the central bank um, thinks that there is this relationship between inflation and unemployment. And if you allow unemployment to fall too low, inflation starts to pick up. So what central bankers do all over the world is adjust interest rates, try to set what we say, set monetary policy so that they keep just the right amount of unemployment in Mm -hmm. the system to prevent inflationary pressures from increasing. So you might need 7 million unemployed, might need 8.5 million. They don't know. And these are not
0: just, these are not people that are unemployed because they don't want to be, that either they're young or they're retired or they're, for—for for, these are people, unemployment, I just want to make it clear to everyone, uh, as defined, uh, is people that want to work, people that are looking for work, right?
1: Exactly right. You have to be, to be counted as officially unemployed, you have to be actively seeking a job, but not working. So you're, you are right. These are people who want work, but can't find a, so, a job that-
0: and the jobs guarantee then would, would would eliminate unemployment entirely because anyone who wants a job would have one guaranteed, and these would be jobs that would be useful, right? They would be jobs that would be um, con- contributing to their local community in some meaningful way.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a jo- it's an open ended offer, so that you would be eliminating involuntary unemployment. No one could say, "Well, I'm willing to work." but there's no job available. There's always a job available. And you're right that uh, it would, the idea is to have people doing things that are useful. We're not talking about digging holes and filling them back up again. We're talking about um, having people employed doing things that are of value to their local communities. So the program would be funded by the federal government. Why the federal government? Because only the federal government can um, make an open-ended commitment to provide all the financing, the wage and benefit package, um, and, and take everyone who shows up, because it's an open-ended commitment. So you don't say, you know, after the seven millionth person is hired, okay, we're the program is full, we don't have any more money. You have to take everybody who comes. So uh, state and local governments could not do this, because the program will be biggest, right? You will have the the highest number of people in the program when the economy is weakest Mm because people lose their jobs. They move into um, the public service employment program. And as the economy recovers, they transition out and back into private sector work. So state and local governments could never afford to hire uh, unemployed people into the program when the economy is weak because that's when their own budgets are under greatest strain. So it's federally funded but it's locally administered. So the jobs themselves come from the people living in the communities. Imagine that, you know, we have these things all over the United States called American job centers. There are some 2,400 scattered across the country. They used to be known as unemployment offices. Now they're uh, American job centers. You walk in, they'll help you uh, apply for unemployment insurance. They'll help you get, you know, computer search for whether there are jobs that you might qualify for. They'll do just about everything, but, but give you a job, match you up with an actual job. So what we imagine is just enhancing that suite of services so that when you walk in, you could actually look through uh, a computer screen or a binder and say, these are things that the community has said that they value the jobs that they would like done. What looks good. Mm. And you could match yourself up to jobs in the community. And, you know, we imagine that broadly the jobs would be oriented around caring for the community, caring for people and caring for the planet.
0: Right now the one thing that has been getting a lot of traction on the left and the right, I feel that over the last ten years that it, it sort of comes back, and it, every now and then it comes back to, to public consciousness. Is a kind of a guaranteed basic in, income or, or an annual income, and we certainly saw in Canada for the first eight months of the pandemic there was a the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, which was essentially a check that went out to anyone who needed it, a guaranteed income. How how would you look at a guaranteed income versus the jobs guarantee? What you know. Do you think at all about the difference between those two?
1: Mm-hmm. So a job is a guaranteed job or a job guarantee is a job for anybody who doesn't have one, but wants one. Uh, I think that you know these kinds of programs that you rolled out there and that we rolled out here, I mean, if, if you reported in Canada, as I understand it, if you reported that your in- income was adversely impacted due to covid Then there were some eligibility requirements, right? Mm -hmm. You you could apply and you could get this. So it didn't, it wasn't a universal basic income in the sense that it truly went to everyone. It was universal. Uh, So it wasn't a UBI, right? right? As people. No, but it
0: made everyone think about the UBI. Everyone started thinking, why why couldn't this just happen? And why did I have to qualify? (laughs) Why did I have to fill out paperwork? Right.
1: Right. Well, and and it did that here too. These checks, these fourteen hundred dollar checks. A lot of people saw this as um, as kind of opening the door to mm-hmm. a possibility that we just make this commitment and send recurring. Why if why these one off payments? Why not a recurring um, payment that serves as a sort of income support? You could have a, a program like that, some form of of guaranteed income to support. People for whom they would otherwise not have, you know, enough to subsist on and not have enough to to cover basic needs, you could have something like that alongside a job guarantee, they, they could live with one another, but they do different things right. The the income support is just a, a a one-way payment. There's nothing happening on the other end in terms of an obligation. With the mm-hmm. job guarantee, there is uh, an obligation on the other side. It's a so- sort of social compact where you say, um, if you know, you you want to work and contribute to the community, we will pay you to do that. We will find something uh, you know for you to do, and we will compensate you for giving back to the community. Um,
0: but in your mind, I guess, is that important? because it's easier for people to swallow the idea that it's not a free lunch? Or is it important because the work that's being done is still a value to the community? Like, I'm just trying to understand it. Yeah, there...
1: it's not about the former for me. It's, um, it's because the job guarantee is uh, about solving the problem of involuntary unemployment, mm-hmm. right? So you will never uh, solve the problem of involuntary unemployment with a basic income. You will still have millions of people who want something to do. They want, they want to work, but they, the economy is not providing a job opportunity. And so this guarantees that everyone who wants to, to be working has, you know, guaranteed um, option of employment at all time.
0: Now, I wanna, I know we're, we're running out of time here, but I also, during the pandemic and, and obviously before there's been an increasing level of awareness of, of income inequality of the kind of the hyper rich, the 1%, you know, um, um, the 1% of 1%, uh,
1: mm-hmm.
0: how much money is in the hands of such a small group of people. You know, there are three families in the States that own basically half the wealth. It's the same in Canada. It's the same just about everywhere in the world, right? There's, there's these tiny fractions of people. I'm curious, within modern, monetary theory. Is inequality something that is dangerous? Is inequality something that we need to deal with? Oh, surely,
1: yes. Um, you know, if your listeners know the name John Maynard Keynes, who's one of the most important economists, I think, of all time, a British economist who wrote, uh, his most famous book was called The General Theory of Employment, Interest, and Money. And Keynes is influential in MMT. And, um, You know, he ended uh, the book. The last chapter of the book. The first sentence reads: I think this is uh, pretty much a direct quote. The the great failure of our economy. What I should be able to do this. I used to be able to. I used to teach this book, and I could do it really well. The two great failures of the society in which we live, the economy which we have, or something, are its failure to provide for full employment, and its arbitrary and unjust distribution of income. Mm. So I think he's I think that's it. That is absolutely right. Think about how to resolve the chronic problem of unemployment and how to deal with these extreme inequities that we face today in terms of not just income, but in many ways, more importantly, wealth uh, inequality. So yes, I think you know. It, so it's important as the answer to answer your question, but then what to do about it? What to do? So many people uh, talk about raising you know taxes, uh, raising tax, the, right? yeah a wealth tax or increasing the top marginal uh, income tax rate back to you know where it was under um, you know uh, Eisenhower or something like that. And those things are are fine in terms of they they will. Potentially, you know, redress the inequities, but you're chasing after it on the back end. You see, it's like um, once you have accumulated all of this income, once you have amassed all of this wealth, then we come for you and we try to, you know, whittle it down with a wealth tax or or uh, higher taxes of, you know, capital gains and other things. And so you will often hear progressives and Democrats say the problem with the rich is that they don't pay their fair share. And I always think that's the wrong way to look at it. I think that, you know, the problem is with these extreme inequities you refer to three people, you know, and how much wealth they have and so forth, is they're taking more than their fair share. That's why they have so much. So we have to think m- more about pre-distribution, policies designed to get at the root before it all ends up in their hands, as opposed to always thinking that the what we need to do is chase it on the back end and try to tax it away. So Bob Reich, Robert Reich, a friend mm-hmm. of mine, a you know former um, labor secretary, and writes lots of books, and he talks a lot about pre-distribution. You know, think harder about um, what we can do in terms of patents and protections and monopoly, antitrust, um, labor laws, trade laws, and and tax is part of it, but I think it should be part of a, a broader suite of reforms to deal with what is clearly, in my mind, a, a very serious problem. Not just because so much inequality is bad for the way our economy works, but it's really corrosive to the way our democracy functions.
0: And so, am I understanding you that that with when, when modern monetary theory kicks in, when we start to spend in, money in, in a rational way without being worried about um, a certain kind of deficit, then we can focus on the democratic deficit, the, the 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 care deficit, the education deficit, all these other things. And, and that's really just where you want our, us to be focused. That it's that, essentially what you're saying is, is if we set up the economy properly, a lot of the mechanisms you're talking about don't require a vote. They don't require a decision because the job guarantee, for example, it, it's just there. We don't have to think about it. Once we set it in motion, um, there, there is no decision-making process. Anyone who wants a job goes and gets a job, right? Um, so, you know, I, I'm, you know we, we talked, I guess this is an awkward way maybe of asking about, you know, we, we talked about the limit of the economy um, being, you know, how much we can actually do, how, many, how much material we have in terms of people and in terms of stuff. Is this also, I guess, a, a thing that, that you're hoping will free up is the time and energy to really tackle things that matter by not focusing on, on this red and black ink that, that really doesn't mean anything?
1: Yes, yes, yes. Oh, that's the hope. I mean, if we could stop fighting over the things that aren't issues, like questions you asked earlier, what if China doesn't want to hold our bonds and, you know, worrying about the run, the watching the debt clock number tick higher and wringing our hands. and And, you know, if we could just set the debate on the right terms, which is what we've been talking about. And you just said, you know, the real resource capacity and not worry about, you know, the things that don't matter and stay laser focused on uh, what does matter. We're still going to have differences of opinion. We're still going to have fierce political debates. If I said, you know, to Congress, if I walked in and and gave a speech and I, then they believed me and I said, look, you guys, I think you've probably got about two and a half trillion dollars of, available fiscal space, low-hanging fruit. Mm -hmm. You could um, take advantage, use the budget, spend money, or cut taxes. you got about $2.5 trillion of non-inflationary fiscal space out there. How do you want to use it? Democrats would run in with infrastructure and climate and education and R&D, and Republicans would say, you know, let's do tax cuts and maybe some infrastructure. I mean, there are differences, right? The political parties have different priorities, but at least we would be debating uh, on the right grounds, right? We Mm. would be recognizing that there's an inflation constraint that has to be respected, but we have the capacity to spend more. How do we want to use that fiscal space as a nation?
0: So in the book, you describe You have an anecdote where, where you describe explaining the budget to, to a senator uh, and explaining how modern monetary theory works. And there's a moment when all of a sudden the senator understands what you're saying. But that understanding alone is not enough because the senator doesn't feel confident selling this idea to his colleagues and to the wider world. I'm wondering, what do you think it's going to take for people to hear what you're saying, look at the mask, sit down, sort of, you know, do all the thought experiments. And then once we understand that um, there is this, this, this wiggle room that you're talking about, this massive amount of spending we could do that would make the world a better place that wouldn't have any negative impact, what's it going to take? Are you optimistic that, that, that politicians are ready to listen and that the public is smart enough to understand what's being said? Like, I, I mean, what, I guess I, I'm looking for what is the next step? Now that you're out there, the book is selling. It's a New York Times instant bestseller. It, it's people all over the world are reading it. Do you feel like that that's the first step? What, what is the next step, I guess, is my question. What, what's it going to take for, for people to start implementing uh, this understanding of the economy?
1: Well, they already are. So this is this is the good news. That conversation actually was with Congressman Emanuel Cleaver that I write about in the book. And that took place 10 years ago. And a lot has changed, Sean, in 10 years. I mean, when we went from watching what was happening across the pond to Greece and, and other countries and worrying that we could end up like Greece to beginning to understand exactly why we were never at risk of ending up like Greece. And when it comes to um, members of Congress and the willingness or interest in this kind of work and and the willingness to depart from the way we used to think, the broken thinking, and to shift into new modes, I can tell you that I am having conversations all the time. I've uh, been asked, I get on the phone, I will get on the phone with 100 members of Congress at once and go through this stuff. I there are things that I do that I don't talk publicly about, but when something becomes public, then I can um, comfortably you know, uh, talk about it. And I, I think there was an article in the New York Times three or four weeks ago about Senator Schumer, um, who's the majority leader in the Senate. And um, that story included um, that I, I've been working with, with Senator Schumer and his staff for a number of months and in an advisory capacity, um Senator Brian Schatz a senator from Hawaii has just openly tweeted about you know reading and how much he enjoys my book and he talks in interviews about MMT and about a new way of thinking and I mean I could go on and on there there is a lot of rethinking I worked for Senator Sanders I was an advisor to him I worked as his chief economist in the Senate and he's now the chairman of the budget committee he played a huge role in pushing that $1.9 trillion COVID relief package through. And there were no offsets. There was no hand-wringing over deficits. You're, in fact, hearing um, very little even from Republicans about debt and deficits today. More and more, the emphasis is shifting to inflation. Even when um, Larry Summers, who is a well-known economist and a former Treasury Secretary, a former Obama economic advisor, Larry thought this $1.9 trillion was was probably too much, too big, and he got worried. But this time, when he expressed concern, he said his concern was that it would lead to overheating of the economy. Mm. And so he's worried about potential inflation risk. And that's, of course, exactly where MMT has asked us to to go, you know, not to worry about insolvency or turning into Greece or any of those things. And this is a this is a big um, shift in, in Larry Summer's own thinking, because when the Republicans did their tax cuts in 2017, he said he was against them. And he said he was against them because of the impact on the deficit and that he thought it was going to leave the U.S., um, in his words, living on a shoestring for decades to come. So he's not talking like that anymore. We're having a, a very different conversation. Um, you're you're looking at Democrats now who want to do. We've talked about this another few trillion on an infrastructure, climate-related sort of thing, and they're all starting to think about whether we need to offset that spending, and if so, how much. And I think they've got inflation, and and that is you know the relevant risk, and they're looking out for that constraint. So. I think so much has changed, and it's it's been very encouraging from my perspective.
0: Well, thank you so much. Congratulations on the book, and and uh, and all the the work you're doing. And um, it's wonderful that you are being heard, and that we may see over the the coming years um, some real positive change.
1: Thank you, Sean. It was really a pleasure to be with you.
0: That was my conversation with Stephanie Kelton about her best-selling book the deficit myth our official bookseller is perfect books and wherever you are right now there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you some great books please take a moment to rate and review the podcast and don't hesitate to recommend it to a friend if you enjoy this episode or any of our virtual programming please consider making a charitable donation your financial support will allow us to continue to bring you the world's most interesting authors and thinkers this podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubay. Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm your host, Sean Wilson. I want to thank the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. Thank you for listening.